Lord Jesus, we wait before you expectantly, not because we are worthy, but because we know that we are unworthy. We have nowhere else to go. We know enough of you to know that you are the source of truth and life and joy. Have mercy upon us in our need and speak to us from your word by your spirit, that which will help us and strengthen us in our task, in our calling to be followers of you. Amen. Please be seated. One day in the year 1806, a well-dressed man in his 20s visited a London doctor who was renowned for being able to treat what in those days were called melancholia. We would call that these days depression. The patient explained that he felt overcome by a terrible sadness and that he didn't want to get up in the morning. Life didn't seem worth living. Well, said the doctor, in with your condition, I would normally prescribe a course of medicine. But it so happens that I have recently come across something which will alleviate your condition much more quickly and effectively. I recommend that you go go to Covent Covent Garden Theatre to see the pantomime, Harlequin and Mother Goose. This is the happiest thing I have ever seen performed on a stage. Tears of laughter ran down my face. I am sure that watching Rimaldi the Clown will cure you completely. I think you know what's coming, don't you? Alas, said the patient, I am Rimaldi the Clown. And from Grimaldi the Clown to Robin Williams uh, the Clown, so many have hidden behind a smile and attempted to hide a deep unhappiness, a deep despair, a deep hopelessness. And it's not just clowns either. Voltaire was a brilliant philosopher, but he once wrote, I wish... I had never been born. Lord Byron lived a life of hedonistic pleasure. At the age of 35, he wrote, My days are in the yellow leaf. The flowers and fruits of love are gone. The worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. Buzz Aldrin was the second man to step onto the surface of the moon. And after that high spot, that unbelievable moment, unrepeatable moment in his life, his elation was quickly replaced by what he called the melancholy of things done. He'd done the ultimate. What else was there left to do that could have any satisfaction or any joy in it? 
and it's just not those that we can name from the pages of recent or ancient history. Last year, in this country, over, about, uh, over 50 million prescriptions for antidepressants were written, a rise of 25% in just the, 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 the most recent four years. The poet Shelley, perhaps, summed it up. Rarely, rarely comest thou, spirit of delight. Will you turn with me back to our reading that Anne brought to us earlier in our service? It was Isaiah, the book of the prophet Isaiah, and chapter 61, and you'll find it on page... 748 in the Church Bible. Isaiah 61, page 748. And here, against a backdrop of deep and widespread unhappiness, is a chapter in God's Word teeming, overflowing with joy. Words such as good news, gladness, delight. And then in verse 7, if you see, alighting on that very word, joy. My message to you this evening is about joy. I'd like us to consider from this chapter two questions about joy. Who, according to this part of God's word, who is the bringer of this message of joy? And then secondly, what is the content of this message of joy? Who is the bringer? And what is the content of the message of joy? First of all then, who is the bringer of this message? Who is this figure who refers to himself as me? The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. Well, here is one who, verse, uh, verse 1, uh, informs us is empowered by God's Spirit and commissioned by God himself. Empowered and commissioned to do what? To preach good news to the poor. To bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. And again I ask the question, who is this, who can carry, convey, embody such a message from God? Well, we could say, well, it's the prophet, isn't it? It's Isaiah. And we wouldn't be wrong, I'm sure. Or we could look more widely over the prophecy of Isaiah and identify this person with that mysterious and wonderful character who we have been introduced to in earlier chapters, that we often refer to as the servant of the Lord, most notably, of course, in chapter 53, the servant of the Lord. 
Or we could even argue that it is that this person is speaking on behalf of the people of God, Israel. And I don't think any of those answers would be, answers would be mistaken. Yet we can be more confident about the identification of the speaker here because we are in the position of being able to look the answer up in the back of the book. Uh, several centuries later, a young man entered his local place of worship, took from the person who was leading the service the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, opened it up and read these words, or the, the, first, uh, the first part of this chapter, and then said to all who were listening agog to him, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Of course, that young man was the young preacher, Jesus. And he had the audacity to announce that this prophecy is fulfilled in him. Today, he said, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. A scripture which is so brimming brimming over with a message of joy. Is it any surprise that when the angels announced the birth of Jesus, they said it's good news of great joy? And what about at the end of Jesus' earthly life? How did he leave his disciples? His disciples who are going to be sorrowing and doubting and fearing and suffer much difficulty. And he assured them, in this world, You will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. From beginning to end, Jesus brings a message of joy. Indeed, he embodies joy. I say with confidence then, because on this occasion we can look it up in the back of the book, that Jesus is the focus of this prophecy. He is the bringer of of joy. But now secondly, what is the content then of this message of joy? What's its content? Well, it's a theme that actually anybody who watches the television um, is actually quite familiar with, because it seems to me that the television screen is is full of the kind of programme which shows transformation. Makeover programs, gardens, houses, bodies, pets, people's behaviour, from ladette to lady, or that kind of thing, brat pack, and so on. So we are quite familiar with this idea of transformations. But what transformation is happening in this chapter? Look at it in verse 3. A transformation from a funeral to a wedding to provide for those who grieve in Zion to bestow, to comfort, in the end of verse uh, verse 2, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Transformation there from a funeral picture, ashes and so on, to 
the rejoicing of a wedding. There's also the picture is given of a transformation from a wasteland to a cultivated garden. Also in verse 3, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord. And that planting the Lord implies the richness of um, a vineyard, of a rich harvest of, uh, uh, from, from the vines. Another picture is given in verse 4, a transformation from a ruin to a thriving city. Do you see that in verse 4? They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated, renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. And then a further picture is given in verse 7, a picture of a transformation from disgrace to honour. Instead of their shame, my people will receive a double portion. Instead of disgrace, they will rejoice in their inheritance. So they will inherit a double portion in their land, and everlasting joy will be theirs. So this is a chapter all about wonderful transformation. And I wonder what bitter regrets, what Wasted opportunities. What broken relationships? What pangs of guilt haunt so many? Perhaps amongst those who are seated here this evening, in our personal lives, in our families, and in our society. And Jesus brings a message of transformation. We're beginning to find, I think then in this chapter, the secret of joy. That there's a promise of a thorough, drastic, a radical transformation. The secret, if you like, of real, deep and lasting happiness. The Christian essayist Joseph Addison once summarized the the secret of happiness like this. He said, the grand essentials of happiness in this life are someone to love, something to do, and something to hope for. I think that's quite simple and yet quite profound. Someone to love, something to do, and something to hope for. And you know, we actually find all three of those in this chapter. Let's look at it together. There is joy, according to this chapter, in loving and serving God above all else. You'll find this in verse 3. Do you see? They'll be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And then, slightly less obviously, but still very dramatically, in verse 6. Do you see what verse 6 says? Um, you will be called priests of the Lord. You'll be named ministers of our God. This idea that uh, God's people will receive joy by serving him as priests and ministers above all else. I don't know how many people are in the queue to do Will's job as a full-time minister of religion, I guess the queue isn't that long. 
But Scripture now holds out to us that that is the most elevated, the most thrilling occupation that any of us can have, and all of us as Christians, in fact, do have. Because Peter, in his epistle, referred to all of us collectively as a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. There is joy in loving and serving God above all else. I don't know if you're aware that um, a new congregation has just uh, started up in Norwich. It had its first service this morning at 10.30. It's called the, um, it's called, uh, the Sunday Assembly. And it does everything that you might expect, or just about everything that you might expect to happen in the kind of service that we are familiar with, that we are acquainted with. They, um, they, they meet together on a Sunday morning. They uh, have time for reflection. They have, I think, a collection. They have uh, an address of some kind. They have tea and coffee at the end. That's a really religious thing to do. And, uh, and they sing songs. They have communal singing. I was interested to know what was on the, uh, on the song sheet uh, for this morning's service. And um, I'll tell you in a moment. But just for the moment, I want to, unless you already know, just tell you that this is an example of uh, a, uh, a, an atheist church, uh, of godless uh, worship. Now, I don't say this in any kind of way to despise what they're doing. Uh, these are not uh, anti-God. They are simply godless. these people. Are, they're humanists and very thoughtful uh, people, I think uh, many of them are. But they, they think it's possible to celebrate without God. To be thankful, I suppose, without having anybody ultimately to thank. Isn't that a strange idea? So on their playlist this morning, they had... Imagine, by John Lennon, which has quite accurately, I think, been described as representing the, uh, the My Little Pony of philosophical statements. <laughs> and perhaps even more astonishingly, they also had on their playlist, on their song sheet, Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. <laughs> and we're sometimes embarrassed with what we sing. So I don't say that to mock these people. I say that if you take the heart out of worship, what is there left to actually be thankful for and to be joyful about if you take God out? Thankfully, the Christian faith offers something more than something merely imaginary and something more than the vacuous, positive thinking of... uh, Monty Python. The great Jonathan Edwards said this about loving and serving God above all else. The enjoyment of God is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven, fully to enjoy God, is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Fathers and mothers Husbands, wives, or children, or the company of earthly friends are but shadows, but God is the substance. These are but the scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God 
is the ocean. There is joy in knowing God and loving and serving him above all else. Secondly, there is, according to this chapter, uh, joy in being part of a cause that is bigger than yourself. Joy in being part of a cause that's bigger than yourself. Do you see how in verses 3 and 4, the mourners, those who are mourning in verse 3, become, in verse 4, the rebuilders, the restorers, and the renewers. They have work to do, a joyful, constructive work to do. Cities and gardens and marriages take time and effort and cooperation, but they are worth it. The psychologist Abraham Maslow, not as far as I know a believing Christian, but he was wise enough to say this, I never met a happy individual who was not committed to a job or cause outside himself. Because such people have a mission in life, they are not self-centered and introspective. For them, happiness is the byproduct of work and duty. I think that's entirely so. This sharing together in God's work is what the Bible calls fellowship. And what is being built as we work together is nothing less than what the Bible calls the kingdom of God. There is joy in being part of a cause that is bigger than ourselves. And then thirdly, I think we draw out of this chapter that there is joy in having hope. I don't just mean wishful thinking. I mean what the Bible calls a sure and certain hope. The late uh, Bible scholar Derek Kidner observes in this chapter um, an, an unfolding of God's truth, first in the bud and then in the flower and then in the full fruit. The bud is how this chapter worked out in the times uh, in which the the prophet uh, spoke. Because uh, in Isaiah's day, uh, God's people would return from exile in Babylon following the decree of Cyrus in 539 BC. But that return from exile was not all that they hoped for. We read in Nehemiah and chapter uh, chapter 9, the people of God complaining, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers. And so it was when we reached New Testament times. The people are still, as it were, in exile in their own land. And so we meet people like uh, uh, Anna and Simeon in Luke chapter 2, still waiting for the consolation of Israel and for the redemption of Jerusalem. So there's a fulfillment of this in the bud in Isaiah's time, but there was more to come. And of course, that more to come came with with the coming of Jesus Christ when he said, let me remind you, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. What was promised to the Israelites concerning Zion or Jerusalem in verse 3 is now in Jesus offered freely to the whole world, to be enjoyed by all God's people in every time and place. That, if you like, is the flowering 
of this prophecy. But there is still something more to come. There is a future full coming to fruit of this prophecy. When Jesus said, quoted this prophecy from the first few verses of of chapter 61, he stopped. He stopped at the point where he said to proclaim, in verse 2, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He didn't go on at that point to say, and the day of vengeance of our God, because that was and is still to come. Yes, there is more to come. There will come a day when God will put all wrongs to right. Because, as it says in verse 8, he loves justice and he will reward the faithful and he will honour his everlasting covenant. There is a glorious future to look forward to. Not only a reality here and now, but a glorious future. That's why Paul can say to the Roman Christians in his letter to them in chapter 12, be joyful in hope. And again, in the following chapter, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. There is joy in loving and serving God above all else. There is joy in being part of a cause that's bigger than any of us or all of us put together. There is joy in having hope before us. And now two final pictures from the end of this chapter, verses 10 and 11. Do you see there the picture, first of all, of the joy of a wedding celebration? Clothe me with the garments of salvation, arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like the priest and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. All the joy of a wedding celebration and then all the delight of a summer garden. Do you see that in verse 11? As the soil makes the young plant come up, and the garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteous and praise spring up before all generations. This is the happiness of the messenger Jesus, a man who knew unspeakable sorrow, a man, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and yet who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. All that for the joy set before him. And now part of his own joy is to present himself completed by you and I, if we are believers in his name. Here I am, he says to his father. Here I am and the children God has given me. He endured the pain of the cross that he might bring healing to the nations and light and truth and beauty and joy. And so as he has one of the characters in one of his parables say, come, come and share your master's happiness. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, we feel these are but the outskirts of your ways. But we ask you to take us, our weak understanding, our complex and muddled thoughts, our mixed feelings, and we ask you to bring clarity, light, 
truth, love, joy, and peace into our hearts today, into the message that we seek to bring to those around us, into the life of this church as we go in your strength, from strength to strength. Amen.